Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 44 of the End of Sport podcast and the second installment of Swimming Week. In today's episode, Johanna is joined by Catherine Starr, a two-time Olympic swimmer who competed at the 1984 and the 1988 Summer Olympics for Britain. They sit down to talk about abuse and trauma in swimming, as well as the incredible work that Catherine is doing with Safe for Athletes, an organization which she founded in 2011 that helps other athletes who have endured similar abuse and trauma from coaches and teammates. So as always, if you're enjoying the show, please feel free to like, share, and rate us on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at endofsportpod. Check out our website at theendofsport.com. And if you're feeling particularly generous, please support us via our Patreon, which you can find at our website. So with that said, please enjoy the second installment of Swimming Week. Catherine Starr is a two-time Olympic swimmer who competed at the 1984 and 1988 Summer Olympic Games for Britain. She won two silver medals at the 1986 Commonwealth Games and had a successful collegiate career as well at UT Austin. She founded the incredible organization Safe for Athletes in 2011 as a result of her experiences of sexual abuse and trauma and in order to help other athletes who have endured similar abuse from coaches and or their teammates. She has spoken publicly about her experiences and advocacy work on popular media outlets and is very actively involved in pressuring national governing bodies of sport and working with athletic departments to create safer environments for athletes. Catherine, I am absolutely delighted to be able to speak with you today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on and covering such an important um, topic. Absolutely. Um, so we always like to begin by asking our guests the same question just to kind of see how everyone's doing right now. So how are you doing with the pandemic and societal uprisings in Santa Monica, California? So um, I'm actually doing well. Um, there's been a lot of restrictions that have continuing to um, happen in this particular area. But from a health standpoint, um, I have like been so fortunate that I started working with a life coach in March before this even like was really became something. Um, and my life has been transforming in such a meaningful way. And we can share more about the life coach. It's um, Lauren Sander with the Handel Group, and um, who's just changed my life. And I'm excited um, to bring them on board with Safer Athletes. And we're going to talk about I'll talk about them more late, uh, later. So but as far as um, with everything that's going on, um, it's there's a, I live in the solution. Um, so that's where I've been focusing my attention. Um, so first, we'd love to hear about how you initially began swimming in terms of how and where did you first get involved in the sport competitively? Um, and what were the conditions like for girls such as yourself who wanted to swim in the U.S. at that time? So I. Um, I started swimming when I was three and a half. Um, I never had a swimming lesson and I taught myself how to swim. And actually, um, 
jumped in the pool one day and was yanked out by the lifeguard. And uh, I was pulled out and, and I was told I had to be able to swim a lap in order to swim in the big pool. Um, and so um, I swore up and down that I knew how to swim. And I like wasn't going to leave that pool deck until uh, they let me swim. They actually had to get my dad off the golf course to get me um, to stop screaming and stop and think. And so my dad was like, okay, let, just let her swim a lap. And so that's what I did. And, uh, and as soon as I started um, swimming, like it, it, I was like in heaven, like it, I just like left. Um, like I, in my, like I could swim and like nothing stopped me. And how I became like, re, like when swimming like became part of my everyday life, it actually came as a result of um, in first grade, I'm tall. Swimmers are generally tall people and um and, and you're a swimmer so i'm guessing you're you're on the taller side um and i'm not so, actually i'm i'm only like five three. <laughs> oh yeah oh, okay it must have been like butterfly or breaststroke then was in your world um, butterfly yeah <laughs> okay i figured it was one of them and uh so anyway so in first grade i didn't sit under the desk and so at the school i was at and so i used to like bounce the desk up and down we're, we're sitting on my lap and and so I got in trouble for that. They didn't give me a bigger desk. They sent me to the principal's office. And so the the principal and I went to a cat like this Catholic school and principal's like, you know, we got to do something with her. You know, she's very disruptive to the class. And so um, my parents were like, okay, fine. Um, how about if she, if we send her swimming every day? And so that's like when my daily swimming really took off. And uh, it was all because I couldn't fit in the desk. And then I had to run around the school as well every day um, until I was like, you know, until I could burn my energy. So I didn't notice anything like I didn't have like I didn't grow up with this idea of girls can't do sport. Girls can't participate. And I actually had two older brothers. And I was already like into my sport. My, one of my brothers was a played tennis, and he was a pretty decent tennis player as well. So, um, you know, so there was some like, like, but I was the star. I, like, there was something very clear that I was gifted, and um, and so I didn't get this idea that there was something um, there was any different between me and my brothers because I was actually like I was more talented than them at a very young age. And so I ended up, you know, got all the attention around that. And it's, and then I mostly swam as my years progressed. I mostly swam with all boys because I was just better. Like my peer females were nowhere near me. Yeah. And, and so, but at, at that time, like, were there separate, I don't even want to say separate, but there were, there were girls that you could swim with. It was just made more sense because of like your speed and your abilities to swim with the boys. Yeah, there was plenty of girls. Um, and actually there's like, there was, um, there was one other girl who was also talented. Um, but for the most part, it was like maybe the two of us. Um, but for the most part, yeah, there wasn't anything different. There was no difference at all whatsoever. It wasn't like girls and boys on separate lanes. And, um, they were just at one side of the pool and I was at the other, or we were in a different group altogether. So it had more to like just more to do with speed. And there was plenty of girls in the group. And when I first moved up, because when I was eight, 
I started swimming with the high school team. So sometimes it was just the girls and sometimes it was just the boys, depending on like when their competition was, like how that was separated out in the high school. And then when I was 11, I started training. Um, when I was in the States, I trained with the University of Wisconsin men's team. So I didn't even train like, so there was just me. That was it. Yeah. Interesting. No, that's super fascinating. I know that I had said this in my episode. I, I mean, I swam with girls, but like, I loved beating the boys. That was like a huge motivating factor for me. Um, fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I understand that at some point you went to Britain, um, to attend boarding school and to train the coaches over there. Um, now I feel like we tend to hear about, um, sort of, children and teenage athletes doing this in other sports, for example, gymnastics, but perhaps not so much in swimming. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about this? Um, when did you go and for how long and sort of what were the reasons for going there? So um, I went there because of uh, several reasons. Both my parents are British. My father represented Great Britain for four years in there. He was he didn't make the Olympic team because they did it differently back then. And it was based on financial uh, it was more of a financial earnings more than anything else. And so they only sent like eight people. Um, and that was like in 1952 and he was in medical school in 1948 when the Olympics were in London. Um, and so it was to follow in my father's footsteps. Like every part of my lineage is, is very British. Um, and my parents moved over cause my father was a doctor and, and wanted, and, wanted to be part of the health system in the United States. And uh, so that's, and, but half my family is, half of us were born in America and the other half are green, we're green card holding British citizens. Um, and so like on the inside, I was considered um, British. On my voice at the time, I was considered American. Um, and so my father felt that in, um, like I had in when I was eight, I knew I wanted to be an Olympian. And he had felt that I couldn't just go over to Britain and like take a spot. He felt that I should be in the system and uh, and like grow up in the system and be part of the British um, culture over there. And so that's like essentially why. Um, I moved to England, but I also had two brothers who were in boarding school over there as well. And all of my, like all of our family, cousins, um, grandparents, both sides, they were all in England and, at the time. So it made sense. Like it made sense based on the family dynamic, based on the family structure. But let me go back to the thing you said to begin with about people leaving to go swim. So in the 80s, in the 70s, um, in the 80s, Mission Viejo um, here in California in Orange County. It's currently coached by Mark Schubert. No, it was actually coached by Mark Schubert at the time. And it was actually a big program where people moved away from their homes to go train there. So Mark trained more Olympians than anybody else. And it was considered a normal thing to do back in the like 70s and 80s to go and pursue your sports. Um, and Boarding school swimming um, wasn't considered competitive enough, so it wouldn't have been something because we actually looked at um, whether or not to go to a school in the East Coast. I looked at school to go to Switzerland, um, but it, it made sense um, based on like the goals and the person 
that I went to go to England with, um, that I went to go and train with was a woman by the name of Sharon Davis, who uh, got a, a silver medal in the 1980 Olympics. And so I was, so she was 13 when she was in the 76 Olympics. And, and so when I moved over there in 79, um, it was to be like the next Sharon Davis. That was like the, the pursuit and the goal was to follow also in like that, like the British glory's uh, footsteps. Fascinating. And thank you also for that clarification. Um, I, I My comment about that it wasn't common, it's just sort of based off what I know. So that's, that's super helpful. And I could certainly see like myself at that age, if I had that opportunity, I damn well would have wanted to like pursue my, my idol and be the next person. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and so, so what was that training experience like for you um, at that time in terms of like your team, your teammates and, and things like that? So, um, so the way that the school system works in England, is like first form is, it's kind of like middle school and high school together. So you start in your first year and then, and then the sixth form is, um, like your, uh, junior and senior year equivalent. Um, and so the boarding school that I, that it was called Kelly college and it was an all boys school except for in the sixth form, they allowed, they had women there. And so, and Sharon and, it, it was a very elite group of um, athletes that came out of that particular program. Um, most of us beca- went on to be Olympians. Um, and so my, in the ex- my experience was I actually went to, cause they didn't accept, they started, you had to kind of do the, it's complicated in the sense that you had to do the first three years I kind of starting at the third year, it was kind of like being a freshman and you had, it was like difficult and you kept doing it until you passed it. Right. And so I, I was actually at the local, um, comprehensive school down the street that was mixed. And I went there and trained and ate and did everything else at, at the boarding school. Um, and so, so, but from a like facility standpoint, it definitely did not meet American standards. Um, but from a training standpoint and um, quality of training, I mean, several, we got Sharon, who was a, you know, like a silver medalist. We had Andy Jameson, who uh, have a bronze medal. Um, Robin Brew has a silver medal. Like all in this small little group, there was only like 15 of us that trained with most of that group. There's maybe like six or seven um, that were Olympians or national team or Navy SEALs or very, very well accomplished. We, most people in that group turned out to be well accomplished. Yeah, no, it sounds like it. Yeah. It sounds like it was a really, really great like training environment. Um, now, so we'd, we'd, we'd like to turn a little bit, uh, to talk about your experiences with Paul Hickson, who was Britain's national head coach throughout at least part of the eighties. Um, now, in as much as you feel comfortable sharing, could you give us an understanding of what took place? Um, for example, like what kinds of power differentials exist between you and him? Um, and then I have other questions, um, but maybe we'll just sort of stop there for now. So, um, so in 1982 was my first national team. I was 14, and that's when I made my first national team. And I was training with him as, and he was my club coach. So, and then at the same time, he was the one, the national team coach, but he was also the head Olympic coach. 
So he was the Olympic coach in 84. His name is the Olympic coach in 88. And so I had day-to-day interactions with him, being that he was my club coach. And I swam there with five guys as well. And so, and, and he would only train one female athlete with the boys. And so it was clearly me. Um, and the person that um, he had trained before, I knew she, who actually brought the lawsuits forward. But the way that the system worked was, so I, I mean, I could certainly get into, if you want me to, I'm certainly happy to share a sort of like what transpired and where the, cause you asking about the power dynamic. So the power, like, so what ha- like since he was the way that they chose the teams was a little different in England or to be on the British team. It was actually at the end of the, at the end of trials, the coaches would have a con- like a meeting and they would determine who was going to be on that team. So, I mean, you were still, you were only considered if you were like first or second, like in world championships, it's first or second or Commonwealth games, it's like top three. And so, and Paul was the in charge in the, in the head who was going to make a determination of whom was going to be on that team. And so the first national team that I was on, the sexual abuse hadn't started. Like the grooming had, but the sexual abuse hadn't started. And then from that national team event, and there were several other events in a short period of time, that was like in April, March, right? And and then at the end of May, but there was maybe like three or four international competitions in there. And so at the end of May, there was a competition for, and it was the world championship trials. And so world championships only take two people. And the sexual abuse had already happened. And um, when we got to world championships at the trials, I was second. And he would still continue to pursue me sexually well he that never stopped over the course of my whole athletic career um and he and so when the team came out when they because they would announce it in the papers like they'd usually tell you like so sunday night at the end of the competition they'd tell you and then it would be like in the national paper and those two journalists that always followed the team that i uh, anita lonsbra and pat besford and and Anita wrote for the Daily Telegraph and Pat Besford wrote for like the Daily Mirror or something. And and so, um, and so in the morning that like I I knew I was, I wasn't on the team. And so when I saw him at practice, he specifically told me that if I wasn't going to allow him to have sex with him, I wasn't going to be on any team. And I'm 14 and I have this like, like, you know, there's this, um, like, it, it was this sadness because, like, I knew I was up against a wall. Like, there was nowhere for me to go with that. Like, and, and part of the, the shame and the anguish that I had to contend with at the time is that there was alcohol involved. And that's always a, because he had, he had fed me alcohol, which, I mean, I willingly drank that. And, um, so, you know, so there's that like keeps you in that shame and guilt. 
And, you know, and so that was the beginning of a series of events that happened exactly like that throughout my career. And so, and then sort of what happened was around like how this power dynamic changed slightly um, was so in Commonwealth Games, so, so that summer there was European Junior Championships. And we can talk, go back to talking about that because that's more of when you want to get into that Cold War Eastern Bloc stuff I can share with you about. Um, and so, and then there was Commonwealth Games. And at the Commonwealth Games trials, like I had the trials, and um, at the trials, it's top three. And I was in the top three in all four events. And there was one person who was second. I was like third in the 800 and second. The person, and she was third. She was behind me. So so in all the events. And they took just the third person and they left me off the team. And his excuse was is that I was young. I was too young and I couldn't be controlled. And so that was the like the impetus to like not have me on the team. And and it was, you know, they attacked, like he just attacked my character. He he attacked my, um, like I was just defenseless. I'm a child, you're adult, therefore you're right. And that was like the dynamic that like exists. So so I didn't really have anything to say. And so then the following year, I actually wanted to quit after that. That was like, I was done. I And so and I told my dad, I was like, I just wanted to quit swimming. And um, he convinced me not to um, and said, come out and train in Hawaii that year, um, which I ended up doing, which changed my, um, like I had something to like look forward to because there was no, I just was so broken after having that experience. Um, and so it was it sort of exchanged into this, this reward, but I, but it, I was still suffering. Like the silent suffer just um, was bubbling inside of me. And, um, and so then the following summer, and there's a lot of events that, that have transpired through here. Um, but the following summer was European championship trials. And I'm still like, I'm 15. So I'm still doing like, and also junior Europeans. And so in that particular year, it was in Rome in 1983. And once again, I was in like rightfully qualified to swim individual events, to swim relays. I mean, I was in, you know, second in the 200. I was like second in the 100. Like both of those, I should have been, um, you know, on, on relays and individual events. And so I wasn't actually chosen for the team because once again, it went to the coaches and making that determination. And I was so devastated. Like, and, I, and that was like where that powerless feeling is. Like, what can I do about this? Like, it wasn't like I, I swam fast enough. And there was a woman in the gymnastics. I, I'm, I, I'm escaping her name, but she was second um, in, the, in the 2016 Olympic trials. And she uh, wasn't Mag- on the team. Maggie Nichols, I think. Yes, exactly. It, and so, and it's like under similar, like she had to, un, un, like when that, when I knew about that, when that happened, like that whole, I just felt like so devastated for her. Like that was so not right. And, and, you know, people were like looking into the Ted Stevens Amateur Sports Act and, and the policies and things of how they're written. And it's like, well, it's written that way and they have the right to do this. And, and, but it didn't serve like, the the ideology of sport it didn't meet the the motto of the olympic movement any of that 
it just devastated, um, you know, this person like broke their heart for, for, for a reason that's unacceptable. And so, um, so like I understood that. So, so what happened, like, so in this European trial thing, so Pat Besford, who was one of the journalists, she calls me up and she says, do you know why you're not on the team? And I'm like, you know, cause she wanted to do an interview. And, and at this point I'd actually had a lot of like media coverage for being so young and being so good. And cause I'd broken all the British records and British junior records and was, you know, um, like coming up the tales of, you know, breaking British records as well. And, uh, and also highly world ranked as well at the time. And, you know, so it was clear that I was like a gifted, I was gifted. And, you know, and so when she asked me that, I was just like, I had no answer. And she, and so she goes, okay, I'm going to write a story about this because you should be on the team. And as soon as I got off the phone with her, within like 15 minutes, if that, I get a phone call from the British Swimming Association saying, oh, we made an oversight and you're on the team. How quickly can you get down to London? Oh, wow. And that was like how that like was put to bed. And and just to kind of interject for a second, did you ever figure out like exactly what the link was? Was it like where the journalists like called the association or, you know, did you ever sort of hear how that came about? Yeah, she called. She called she called the, the British Swimming Association and she told them she was going to write a story about me not being on the team and wanted to know why from them. And so instead of writing the story, they put me on the team. And I just why I'm a relay, I didn't even swim my events. Like it was like, because they'd, they'd, already, they'd already put on the team the slower people. And this was like me, and I, and I was like in a Lockhorn situation with, with, uh, with Paul. It was nonstop, like, or, you know, if you don't do this, then you're not going to be on the team. It was this nonstop quid pro quo structure that I was, you know, struggling it. And I didn't have a voice. I didn't have a resource. I couldn't tell anybody. I didn't even know like what I was going to say in other than all I knew is that I love swimming. I was gifted. I trained for it. And, and it was being like challenged at every, every step in every place that I showed up. And, you know, I'm getting, and I'm not going to ask this question, not as like a question of judgment, but like just knowing that most people don't share what, when this stuff is going on, because they're scared, they don't think they have any sort of allies or anything. I mean, I'm I'm guessing that you didn't know that he had done this with other girls. Well, what I did know is that um, the woman before me who brought the lawsuit, I knew that they had a sexual uh, relationship. But I was also 14 and I didn't like, like when I knew that that happened, she was 17 at the time. And so I, it didn't register like that I was the next victim. None of that registered for me. So it wasn't in the other part of it, which was um, other coaches were having sex with minors. So we had like of the eight, like at the Olympics of the eight coaches that we had, Seven of them were having sex with somebody on the team. Holy cow. Yeah. Wow. So for me to, to go, who, 
like it's so then you're sort of like you cut out like well obviously I can't go to any of the coaches because they all have the same right. behavior and then we we had a chaperone joy who um he, he was this older woman and not only was she like sort of she was like this older British woman but she um she wasn't really relatable like she, you know what I mean? Like she wasn't somebody you would go and she seemed more like an older house mom, like, mm-hmm. um, you know, somebody from the boarding school world that you wouldn't like really go and talk to, but they're there to like oversee that you're not in trouble, but you're going to go and sneak out of the house anyway, <laughs> you know, that kind of yeah. person. So yeah. it wasn't really like, it, it wasn't, like you weren't going to go sit next to her on the bus and, you know, when we're moving from one place to the other and just like have a casual conversation where they would find out, um, you know, so it wasn't really set up to, and then the, the officials like that ran the swimming association themselves were also very unrelatable to go and talk to, you know, they used to walk around the pool deck with these, like these elaborate, medals like um like a shield almost of like all of their like accomplishments like you know something sort of out of royalty and so you know it's not something you would you would go over and in like as a 14 year old who's well trained in british manners you know that like i spent my life um being trained to dine with the queen like that was like what i was trained to do it wasn't just to be an olympian it was to like dine and be part of the highest level of society. Like that was like the, like what you did and in how that structure of like Britain worked, Um, you know, so, so you, there was like a lot of unspoken rules on how, like whom you can talk to. And, you know, that was sort of like, there was that stuffiness with it all. And, you know, and the irony or the interesting part is my peers or my friends, I think everybody had like their own thing, like their own challenge. And it was always about like, like your focus was always on this pursuit of being the best in the world that came with that level of attention. And so to sidetrack yourself into like, you have an issue, like, oh, you had this, he's harmed you. There isn't like your peers don't really have a place to go with it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. No. And I I think you did such a great job of like explaining the culture at the time and sort of, and, and, you know, even this issue of like the chaperone and the officials, it's like, you know, it's an issue of being unrelatable, but like that is so important, you know, comfort and, and being confident that you can tell somebody and that they'll, they'll do, you know, that they'll be respectful with that information. I mean, that takes like a really strong sort of really unique relationship. so, so yeah, it makes total sense. As, as a 14 year old, you're, you're still learning about your body. You're still learning about what, you know, adults do with their bodies. Um, so, you know, all of this, all of this makes uh, perfect sense. So once you kind of got on this team, um, now you said that he continued the advances, the advances and attempts to abuse you like after that. Um, and sort of how did that, um, how did that work with your career? Cause you did go to the 84 Olympics and you did go to the 88 Olympics. So sort of how did that, how did that work out? So I'm going to give you a couple of um, points. So one of them is, so when I started Safer Athletes 2011, launched in 2012, 
at the time, I still had half dozen records still in my name, almost 30, 30 years later, um, if not more. Like, and people would text me, you're still, like, your record's still, and still not broken, right? And they only got broken when, like, the suits, it was the, it was the, it was the new suits um, that, that took them off the, off the record books. So, so that just sort of, and that, those, every single one of those records that still, that were still on the books when I started Safe Athletes, every single one of them was pre-being sexually abused that stayed that long. Okay. So, and then when, and so when the Olympics came around, so after, well, after the European championships in 83, right. So how the Olympics works is there's a A time and a B time and you have to be top 16 to qualify. And, and so you can't take like, so the A time is faster than the B time. So like let's just say the two and a freestyle was like two Oh two something. And so two people would have to be faster than two Oh two. And then the B time, let's just say the time was two Oh three. So if you send somebody on the B time, you can only send one person. Okay. And it's a slower time. You can't like, so you can't like send your fourth place person at that time. And also your first place person, you're not allowed to, you can only send the fourth place person if that's like what you plan to do. And so, um, and so what happened was, is that I had qualified, rightfully qualified top 16 times in the world. And so in these A times, and so there was no negotiation, there was no negotiation from the coaches because they couldn't go to the next person. I was, and so, and, and both of us wouldn't have been able to go. So they had, so that was how I rightfully had qualified for the Olympic games. And when I was 16, now what happened when I was there is that I was put in Paul's group to train and it, cause we trained, I think we trained in, um, we trained in Gothenburg in Sweden for, for a few weeks. And, uh, and so, and I was put in his group on, and you were, I would have been in his group the whole time. And I said, no, I'm not doing it. And the, the coach that I was training with, um, his name was Keith Bewley and there was seven of us on the team and he was banned from coaching, like the irony of this whole thing. So he, he was like the most amazing coach and Keith, and I had moved from Paul to go and train with Keith. And I trained with, um, another, like of the seven of person who I directly trained with and swam the same event, June Cross, she got a silver medal in, in, um, 84 and the 200 freestyle. And, or so she got silver and bronze, 200, 400, forget which is which, but, and so, um, and so, and I was second to June in the 200 freestyle. And, and when it came to being assigned a coach, cause Keith wasn't, um, eligible to be a coach. Cause when he was a swimmer, he cheated on his expense report. So he had this like permanent ban, right. For cheating uh, for like a 50 pound, let's say, let's just give it a full in bad currency exchange rate, a hundred dollars, right. That he was banned from ever coaching yet. They had all of this like sexual abuse that was rampant and transparent that, that was known and it wasn't addressed. And so that was like, so then when you also say, well, why don't you speak up? You're like, well, this is what like they like the hypocrisy of this whole structure is like, you don't let this person coach 
and you let this person coach. And not only that, there were multiple people that complained about Paul that I know of my peers that had said um, that he was sexually abusing girls. And I know that one of my teammates who did know about it between 84 and 88, that they did speak to the, the um, British Swimming Association. And after they told that, them about it, he was actually promoted. So not only did it leave me in a, in a position of, well, how can I possibly, like, you're not trustworthy. There's nothing at this institution that's going to do anything to stop what's going on. And it continued. And so, and so in 84, I didn't swim and I didn't train at the level that I needed to, to excel. One, I didn't have my actual coach, Keith, because he wasn't allowed to be part of the team. And then I refused to swim with Paul. And then I went into the sprint group, which didn't meet my training needs at all. And so that's, so it was really, I sacrificed my swimming um, excellence to protect myself from the situation that I was finding myself repeatedly in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, on the one hand, I'm like, I mean, on the one hand, I'm like really good on you for sort of being strong enough to do that. But of course you shouldn't have had to, you know, like that shouldn't have ever had to be a choice that you made. No, no. And and that's, you know, so it's like the fire in me that um, can make those choices. And that's really why I started Safer Athletes, right? It's because I knew I had a strong voice. Mm-hmm. Like I knew that I had the ability to like show up for um, and give an athlete a voice when they they weren't like it's being denied at every place at the institutions and and the friends and the parents, like all of it, like the whole structure and the way it like stays in the system just allows this abuse to flourish. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Definitely. And and so I, um, you know, when you, you mentioned before that some, some lawsuits were brought in the nineties, um, what kind of reaction did like the British swimming world have to that? Cause you, you've just really done a great job of explaining how the entire culture was cultivating abuse, essentially. I mean, if seven out of eight, like Olympic or national team coaches are having relation, you know, sexual relationships, athletes, sexually abusive relationships. I mean, that really just shows how endemic it was. So, so when this lawsuit was raised in the nineties, what was kind of like the reaction to it? So, um, so a couple of things happened. One, um, as I'm sure you're well aware in, um, in Britain, media and newspapers are a huge thing. And I mean, daily newspapers are a big deal. And so when this happened, so when, so when Paul was arrested for this, it was front page news and there was a lot of drama around the arrests and his wife and they harbored in France and they didn't show up for arraignments. Like, like there was a lot of things that happened that just made the story even more like noteworthy. And he would, they actually did a show on like most wanted, like one of those, like, you know, and, and did this whole thing on him. Um, and so, but as far as like my, like my teammates, like I was going through, this is like, so if you're in the nineties, just from a technology standpoint, maybe we really were just getting like the AOL discs in the mail. I don't know how old you are, but that was mm-hmm. kind of, yeah, like, I remember this, <laughs> right? the bird future bird feeders. And, um, 
you know, and so, you know, so there wasn't really like a whole lot of, um, like we really were still back in like the newspaper days of things. And there wasn't a whole lot of like international communication, although in 84 IBM was a sponsor and that's kind of when the intranet kind of started in the, in the Olympic village. Um, and so, um, so anyway, so, so I, my sister was marrying, um, her husband is British. And so they would bring these newspaper articles over. And I went through this process of like people, cause now everybody knew about it. So when I would go to England, cause I would still regularly every year go to England and see relatives or I had stuff to do there, just various events and what have you. And, uh, people would ask me, did this ever happen to you? And it was in such a like a casual conversation that that like sort of transpired at the time. And it wasn't necessarily from my teammates. We didn't stay like in the, when, when I separated um, from training over there, I didn't have, it was, it was handwritten letter writing time. I mean, you had to like, you had to have like an actual like address book with like handwritten stuff in there and then actually sit down and write a letter and go to the post office. It's, it's a lot of work as opposed to sending an email, just in case you're the young people out there are wondering how we communicated. Might as well have needed a horse to communicate between people. Um, and, uh, you know, and so through that process that there wasn't a whole lot of like, like I didn't get any emotional exchange from many people other than what was being uh, read in the paper opinions from my mother and um and then from like my sister's relatives and my cousins and my aunts and uncles like all of them like had a, a vested interest because they knew that I trained with him and it was a period of time when I um was really sh- like after I ended my swimming career um I was shut down emotionally mentally like I hardly ever spoke like if if I said anything, it was my entire sentence structure involved the word fine. That was it. And uh, it, that was like all of it, you know. Um, so, you know, and, 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 and I had my hair in front of my face and I looked at my feet and like, like I was so hunched over. I was just this wilted person. And my life existed of like going to work and drinking and that was it. And, um, and so I, you know, so as far as like sort of having that camaraderie, I didn't have like the, certainly no social media, like we're barely an internet and back to like writing letters. So, so I really didn't have like a connection to people to process any of what was going on as far as like from the lawsuit, other than people nonstop asking me, did this happen to you? Yeah. And, and it, you know, I'm, I'm really glad you sort of explained the, not like the modes of communication, because obviously now, I mean, I mean, using the Nasser scandal, you know, as like an, as an example, because it's one that everyone's familiar with, but you know, like people can find out immediately, right. They can talk about this sort of thing, these sorts of things immediately, which I imagine plays a huge role in sort of um, empowering people as opposed to like not having that, right. I, I could see it as, as being, potentially isolating for people. One would think to draw that conclusion. However, one of the problems of that thought process and specifically in sexual abuse, emotional abuse and physical abuse and mental abuse, there's, there's a little bit more 
immediacy, but not even that, because you don't even know you're abused until like you're in this, until you like wake up to the fact that you're in pain. Um, but with sexual abuse, like if you look at the most recent case, Terry Gray, that just happened like in the last like week or so that that came forward, hence the extra interviews that have showed up. But so he was filed. There was a file over at the Center for Safe Sport about his sexual abuse. But because of the delays with the center and in the like how that is failing the community, um, the sexual abuse continued. And there was additional girls that were sexually abused as a result. So, so you would think like communication would have worked in your favor, but the structures that have been put in place don't support the communication that we have to um, have it work in your favor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you pointed out. And, and I, and I think I, I was thinking about in terms of like victims communicating like with each other and sort of like developing that kind of community as opposed to, you know, in the nineties, not necessarily having that, but absolutely. I mean, the fact that safe sport and organizations these days are not communicating, like that's just a total utter breakdown and shows a lack of priorities, lack of funding, probably lots of other things as well. But um, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, so, um, I wanted to, I do want to talk, since you mentioned the cold war stuff, I do want to talk about that. Um, but I, I would like to hear a little bit more about your experience, uh, as a college swimmer, because on the podcast, we've talked a lot about college sports and swimming is is sort of an interesting sport because it's not, you know, like a huge moneymaker, um, is, you know, predominantly white, um, is seen as like a training ground for Olympic athletes and like in in an international sense, right? Like international athletes come here to train for the Olympics, um, now you also swam at UT Austin. Um, what was this experience like for you? Um, how was, what was the swimming program sort of ranked like at the time and sort of what were your ex- swimming experiences like there? So, um, the University of Texas at the time was the best program in the country. Um, I swam on three national championship teams. Um, we, over the course of the eighties, um, Texas, I think, won eight out of the 10 um, championship teams and into the early 90s. Um, And so, yeah, and I was second, which was a travesty at the time, my senior year, but it broke our five-year stretch of winning national championships. And I participated on my team with, out of like the 17 of us, so I think there was like 12 of us that were Olympians. I think of those 12 um, Olympians, there was um, like like seven or eight medalists. And then of the medalists, there was like three or four world record holders. Yeah, we were the most elite team, not only in collegiate sport. Um, I think we're one of the most winningest programs and certainly at the time of like any sport um and it is actually a very special group of women and the way that um the so my coach three of those years was richard quick and then my senior year he went to stanford and then mark schubert came in my uh senior year and he's the one who's actually down at mission viejo who i referenced earlier about um, and so when I swam with Richard, his way of recruiting actually 
uh, one of the brilliant things he did, he's actually, he didn't recruit any big personalities. And he created like a gel that has connected us in such a beautiful way. Uh, Our alumni, I mean, we have people from other colleges that like want to come to our alumni events. And we're just so close, all of us. I mean, and through the pandemic, we have like I we have a I'm not on any social media, so I like set up a group chat with like a group text with like some of my friends, and we did like a group Zoom stuff early on, like to connect, just where people could just drop in, and um it, like we ha- like we're there, like we have been like like stayed connected through like this whole it actually got really become like deeper relationships through it all. And that has been like the blessing, um, like we're there in each other's weddings and births and deaths and all the things that you have in life. And we show up for each other and it's the most amazing group of women. And several of the women married some of the guys. So we're definitely connected to the men's team as well. Um, but that's a little bit different in the sense that they've had the same collegiate coach the whole time. Um, we're, We've gone through several different coaches over the years, and the women's team hasn't uh, returned back to the the dynasty that as to which that I um, came from. Um, so, from a collegiate standpoint, in the process, uh, that was one of the like. So, from going from '84, and then I was in college. I started college um, in '85. I was I was 17 when I started college. I started a year early, um, and so and that was really what carried me through the 88 Olympics, but I had to go back into the Paul Hickson world. And that was what was became very troubling for me when I had to return back uh, to that dynamic. And that was, and then return from those games um, in Seoul were in like late September, October. So I had to return back to school uh, with a new coach having, um, having the most devastating Olympics ever. And pretty much my father telling me um, after Paul pulled me out of an event in 88. Now I know I'm distracting back to the Olympics from talking about collegiate, but it's kind of flowed. um, That pulled me out of one of my last event and just gave it to to somebody, a, a, a younger girl that he felt was more attractive and would do whatever he wanted. And so and and that was like like the end that that was like when i ended and um like emotionally and everything else to swimming and my father who um invented the spf on sunscreen he was just like a, given an award for his accomplishments he he's well accomplished himself and um and he left like this big sort of celebration for himself to come watch me swim at the olympics and you know, and so these dynamics, like, so what, like, sort of what was taken away in, in, the, in all of my swimming career is my father saying to me, thanks for wasting my time. And that was like, this separated our, like, that pretty much ended our relationship, like, from then until his death. And like that, those are the things that you can't, like, say you were sexually abused. Like, you know, why didn't you say someone? And it's like all these things that you harbored and you hurt and all of this stuff. And like, that was what was affected. Like that, that relationship was what was harmed. And for me, like to be able to address all of this in a way that's, um, 
like healing all around because everybody's had it a different experience. But I went back to college my senior year and went from like leaving that situation to a lot of people um, after an Olympic year, they stop, uh, they, they quit or, you know, just, you know, they, they just quit. And so our team had reduced significantly in size. And so we had a smaller team and I wanted to take the, that year off to like regroup and, and Mark, who I trained with that summer asked me not to, I mean, we had some contentious fights over it. And uh, so I stayed and, you know, and I, and pretty much like the end of like, I, I was uncontrollably crying when we got second um, at NCAAs that year. And like, I just couldn't, I was so emotionally, um, like, like I, it, it was like, I carried all of that hurt and pain. And that was like, as far as I could take it over the finish line. And it was really hard after that to like, it was pretty much the end of my career. I tried some a little bit, swam in a little bit of meets. Um, but that was pretty much the end of like where I could go with myself and harboring the secret and and harboring all of these accumulated set of feelings that I'd had around my swimming and my relationship with my dad and um and just my career so so you know I'd really like to we've kind of been building up this conversation to sort of like your advocacy work and so I'd really like for you to talk a bit about safer athletes in terms of how did your experiences sort of shape your approach to advocacy and mentorship and like, like what is safe for athletes and and what do you do there? So I started safe for athletes by writing a letter to Donna Lopiano, who was the athletic director at the university of Texas. When I was there, I actually wrote her an email. I don't want to misconstrue that. I actually sat down and wrote a letter. Um, and (laughs) <laughs> so I've upgraded my technological advancements. I moved along with life. And so I wrote to her and explained why I was a troubled student athlete in college. And this is what I wanted to do for, um, in, you know, that I was a sexual abuse survivor of my coach and all this stuff. And that I wanted to change athletes' lives and help them because I knew it was still in the system. And she wrote back to me right away. And so, and Donna went on to, and Donna was on like the, the, the board for the United States Olympic Committee, and she was president of the Women's Sports Foundation that Billie Jean King started for um, uh, like 27 years, so a very long time. And so, um, and so when I wrote to her, and so we, so what we did was we decided, like we had this whole conversation about like, so what did you need? Like, so what would have changed your experience like as an athlete at the time, like what did you need? And so that's how Safe for Athletes was like our policies were born. And we put together, and it's the structure of Safe for Athletes, and it's the structure of um, that we have this athlete welfare advocate that, and it's at the local level. So you can take action locally. And so our programs, I'm in the process of actually, we're redesigning and rebranding Safer Athletes. And in the fall, um, we'll have it like in September timeframe, we're going to have a new website, we're going to have like a whole new structure and new services that we're going to bring into the sports community. And, um, and, and because what's important for me is to um, make sure there's resources available, but also that these local clubs are empowered, because right now we go back to like the Terry Gray situation, where the it gets filed into the center and then there's no action. With Safer Athletes, you can 
you would have been able to immediately take action and those other victims would not have become victims because it would have been stopped. And what happens, like, so we, our policies through our, you know, we have an ethics panel, we have the media, like mediation. We, I walk you through all of it from investigation to the outcome. And, you know, and that's what I've been doing with um, clubs that run safe athletes. So, and that was like the impetus to it. But now there's also this, like, like there's fear that's been put in the system of like, well, we have to handle like federally, you have to send everything to the safe sport, which is correct. There's no doubt about that, but it doesn't stop you from being able to take action. And so, and that's what my intention is with, you know, to, you know, to move forward, um, pushing safer athletes out and, and, uh, and getting clubs and gyms and, um, any sports program to start adopting our policies and empowering yourself. Cause I want to give the power back to the athlete and not to the institution and not be a victim to the situation and keep saying, well, they, we have to do this and feel like you have no choices. I'm creating another choice. I'm giving you another path. And that's what like I didn't have. And so between our structure and then this element on top of it, um, I'm super excited to like watch and empower and strengthen our young, um, uh, talented, passionate athletes. And so, no, and this, this is really fascinating. And, you know, I, you know, one question that when we interviewed like Scott Reed is sort of like, what do you tell, like, what is something we, that needs to be done to sort of change sport? Um, and, and we talked about like, what could athletes do? And so I, I guess I would love to hear more about like, you know, say like a 14 year old athlete gets into like, does an athlete contact you? And then that's what happens. Or is it the club that contacts you and you work together with the club sort of how, what is this process? Well, so, so the, so safe for athletes, clubs can contact, contact me, you know, let's, let's get as many clubs listening and who's going to listen and all that other stuff. Like, let's get them signed up. Let's get your, your, let's get a structure in place that empowers the athletes to have a voice. And then we're going to do some programs on top of it, get these, like, um, I'm developing a, I'm going to develop a, uh, a coaching methodology platform with the Handel Group at some point that I want to get these kids in to um, start doing the work to address the issues that are coming up. And uh, so that's like my intention to like create like all these resources and structure and and ideology and vernacular and all this stuff um, for these athletes to take out the victim of the system. Because right now you're like at the mercy of when the center is going to call you. You're at the mercy of whether or not USA Gymnastics is going to, or USA Swimming, or USA Judo, or any of the sports. There's 47 to choose from, you know, and it's, they're understaffed, they're underknowledged, like all of it. Um, and so you're, you're at the mercy. And what I'm trying to say is you don't have to be a victim. Like I've been a victim. I've spent most of my life being a victim. And it wasn't until I started working with Lauren that I've been able to like see how I've been a victim. And like, that's where she's changed. And I've like received, like had that transformation with myself. And like, I want to bring that gift to them, you know, bring the gift to the parents, to the coaches, to the athletes. And that's like, what's not there. It's like, yeah, but they don't do this. It's like, but there are other choices. Let's find them. And, you know, and that's the part where like you get stuck, like you get stuck with, I have a passion this in, in my passion and this relationship with the coach is getting 
intertwined because the coach is feeding my passion, which is also feeding my heart. And it's feeding like the, the, this element that's now I'm developing into my sexuality at the same time. And now those same lines are intertwined. And so is it my sexuality that he's pursuing or is it my passion? And so, and that's like mm-hmm. where this, this, like the confusion to be able to even have that conversation about what those feelings are is like so important that you have this structure to begin with. Yeah. And you know, and I keep going back to the point you made about how you're, you're essentially teaching, like your, your organization is essentially teaching athletes the language that they need to be able to empower themselves. And, and I think even not that I experienced any sexual abuse, fortunately, but just the sexual harassment was really, really rampant. And, you know, I didn't really think about it unless something really awful happened or I heard about something really awful happened and I didn't know how to process it. As you were talking about, like when you're younger, because you don't know what it actually means, you don't know how to process it. So I, I just think that's really important and, and really great that, that that that's kind of the piece that you're adding more recently to it. Well, and it's also, so, and part of it is like, you tell yourself a story. And so I, I have like told myself a story about the events that occurred and it was harming to me how I was continuing to tell myself that story. And so, mm-hmm. so being able to like pull it out and, get a different version of the story, you can have a different experience. And so, and it's like the perception of, you know, like, like making an opinion, like you watched your coach do something. And certainly when you're dealing with like sort of emotional abuse and stuff like that, is that like they've harmed your teammate, right? You've taken on that and you've interpreted to have the experience. So when the coach says something to you, like, are you taking on that same, um, experience that you have before you're having your own experience. And so we take in experiences and and they become convoluted. And then we repeat the story that we keep telling ourselves. So when you're dealing with the sexual abuse side of it, like I had to, like, there was a, there was a time there was like, so like the, the question was, you know, sort of, I held on to like, there's a hold on to suffering aspect of it. And it's like, where could I have gone? Like, who could I have told? But I also, like, did I knock on every person's door? Like, what efforts did I make to do that? Right. So I told myself the story that I couldn't, like, there was nobody to tell. But I also don't know the answer to that question because I didn't go and tell everybody what was happening. You see what I'm saying? So, so, so that's the part where it's like, let's, like, let's separate like, let's get to the story. And then let me help you be able to tell the story accurately. Um, And that's the stuff Mm -hmm. that I want to help because we sit in fear, like we sit in a lot of fear around it, fear, shame, all that stuff. And uh, that is, that's the heavy stuff that sends you into um, drugs and alcohol and other things in life if we leave it there. Yeah. And I, you know, it's, it's such a delicate balance, right? Because you also like, yeah, yes, it is absolutely, as you said about sort of like rewriting or recreating the sort of, I don't want to say narrative, but sort of the narrative of what happened, but also without place, you know, like blaming yourself too much, you know, like the, the whole victim blaming thing, like that obviously can be a huge role in it for some people. I know like for myself, it wasn't, like I said, my experiences were nothing compared to what other people went through. Um, but it, it's just, such like a, a difficult balance to like be on that journey of working through some of these ideas when you're older and and hopefully a little bit more uh, removed from it. 
Um, so, so you wrote a really interesting piece in 2016 for uh, the Huffington Post um, about about the Brock Turner case, and I know, like for me, it really seemed that the the Brock Turner case shook. It didn't necessarily shake up the swimming world, at least I I didn't think it did. And and if you think, I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. Um, but it really kind of changed people's perception of like the culture of swimming in terms of like it's whiteness, who gets, who's allowed to do this and that. Um, now sort of what was your sort of expert perspective on the Brock Turner case? Um, what do you think was the significance of the case and what does it sort of tell you about swimming in our culture? So, um, what I actually had more of a judgment around safe sport in general. I felt that the, that there was a, across the board, um, lack of culture change that happened with safe sport. And so there's sort of this, like, look at how great our program is. And we've done all these things, which I believe are checking the boxes for liability issues and creating more um, constructs in place to just to say we've done all these things. Right. And I think it was really clear for me when Brock Turner had, you know, like a judge that threw it out and, I mean, he just had everything that was um, going, uh, like, that was considered um, entitled is really what I would put him in, in that category. And and I felt that there was no zero, both from Stanford both and from USA Swimming, zero culture and behavioral change that happened as a result of their program. And that's what I felt was a reflection of his actions, like of his behavior, because it, no one cared. No one literally cares about the program. The, the United States Olympic Committee, the um, USA Swimming, they don't care about it, like in the sense that they have well-being for their athletes. What they care about is the lawsuits that come in, and here's the documents that we've provided our community. And therefore, we've done everything to serve our community and protect our community. And so and then when you have like the actions of Brock Turner, you can see he was a, um, a poster child for their not caring because he didn't absorb anything. He didn't have a behavioral change like he did what he ever wanted to do. And so and here you have this saying like, oh, we've put in all this education. We've made all these changes. And but the behavior of the individuals that are receiving this information haven't changed. So either your program isn't good enough or you haven't like you're really not in the business to like change any behavior by anybody at all. It's kind of how I saw that situation. Absolutely. I mean, I think I think you really phrased it well when you said he, he was a poster child for their not caring and and just really caring about kind of like the the, the business and the, the image like the optics right they cared about the, these broader issues and not actually <clears throat> are we are we dealing with this and sort of what does this say about our integrity as you pointed out but our sort of desire to actually help athletes with these issues um, and so I wanted to, um, you know, we, as you know, um, we recently in- interviewed Scott Reed, who was absolutely fantastic. And he, in our interview with him, he stated that uh, USA Swimming historically has been worse in terms of 
sexual abuse and dealing with it or sort of covering it up compared to USA Gymnastics. Uh, I was curious, you know, how might you respond to this point sort of based on your experience and especially with, with what you've done with Safer Athletes? So first, I'm going to say across the board, all sports are equally as egregious. I've been involved in many lawsuits, like as an expert on many lawsuits. And, um, and as far as swimming is concerned, the number of coaches is exponentially more in gymna- than gymnastics, for example. Um, and so, and, and the way that they've allowed the coaches to just move from one program to another is like their system has supported this level of, um, uh, complacency and, and you have to start over. So you just have this coach show up. They haven't really taken enough action within their structure. We were just established there wasn't, there isn't really a real culture change. Um, and it's more of the check your boxes, fill out this paperwork, defer responsibility, but not actually um, like they're, they, they'll, they put all the restrictions on the coaches, but they don't like do anything for, for the athletes. And it, which is across the board, across all sports, but specifically in swimming, the ease as to which it is to move from one club to another, um, especially with like a two year delay is all it does is um, show their lack of truly um, it shows their lack of um, wanting to actually do something about their sports, knowing that it's knowing it's a problem, knowing the number of, of athletes. And I don't think they've ever brought like, for example, like a think tank together and said, okay, this is our structure. It's still causing harm to athletes. We still have a number of coaches. What changes should we make going forward so all of our clubs um, are not, don't have these issues, right? And and you can't hide behind like the federal like law requirements of sending stuff to the Center for Safe Sport because we need to talk about issues that are causing sexual abuse to even happen in the system to begin with. And so what and and that comes way before. And there's it, they've written about proactive policies. They're in the Center for Safe Sport. But I haven't seen anybody who's actually been um, held accountable to their behavior that would fall into the proactive policies in the way that they're written. Um, and, I, and I think, and I'm, and I'm guessing too, that considering your organization ha- has really done so much and is really like involved and sort of constantly rethinking sort of what can we do to best serve athletes and their parents and coaches, that it, it seems as if the the difference between your organizations and, 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 and like safer sport seem very, very stark. Yeah. I'm not here to check a legal box. I'm here <laughs> to change your experience in sport. Like, you know, I like, I don't want you to walk away being a victim from your passion. It's going to mm-hmm. affect you for the rest of your life. I want you to have a joyful life after you're done with your sport. And that's yeah. like, not what's like happening. You know, it's like they take you till you're like, they've squeezed every drop of joy out of you and then you're done. And I want to have you have a different experience. I want you to like your passion, be your dream, like, like dream your life, dream your sport, dream your outcome. And, and they're not, they're not doing that. 
Um, yeah. And so, so sort of related to that, you know, I'm curious, has there been, have you received any sort of like pushback to what you're doing? And, and I'm thinking of whether on like social media or sort of structural organizational pushback. And I, you know, I know that you've worked with national governing bodies of sport and athletic departments to really develop these programs and sort of what has been the reception to all of this really great work that you've done. So I would say the biggest issue is fear that, um, like th- there's a lie in the system that if you do- adopt safer athletes, like it goes against safe sport. And, like that's that's a lie. That's like the lie in the system, right? And it takes away the power from the people to be able to take, you know, make sure that they're putting their kid into an environment that has policies locally. Um, and it, and so that to me is like what is um, like important to like to address the whole issue. Yeah, and especially because you right you sort of your organization is is addressing the issue at a totally different level. So it's it's not even as if the two have to necessarily that the two can't work together or at least both coexist because you're doing something that's completely different from my understanding. Yeah, no, it it, it they absolutely can they absolutely can coexist cuz all that's going to happen is through safe athletes is that we're going to we're going to file help them fl- file their case with safe sport and walk them through immediately how to address the issue right there and then that came up in the moment. So it, so we'll walk you through that. So you're not stuck and you're not at the, um, the mercy of when that center is going to co- contact you. And you know, it seems like to kind of go back to what you said earlier, that if Safe Sport and these other organizations were were actually dedicated to ensuring and like protecting the well being of athletes, that they would see this as like a as a positive thing that you are have your that each organization has its own strengths and its own um, sort of abilities for athletes, and they are all working towards the same goal. This is just w- what seems like it should be from my perspective. Oh, one hundred percent agreed. And, and, you know, and I think time, like knowing that the center is like overwhelmed, that there's opportunity for safer athletes to like, okay, let's, you know, you guys go in at, you know, let's get you in at the local level. And, and I, and I have spoken to various NGBs about, um, adopting safer athletes across the board throughout, throughout their whole, um, membership base to alleviate, a lot of the issues that are coming in, like they just can't keep up with them. Um, and so it moves stuff that really doesn't belong in their house and let's, and it would let them focus on the issues, the, the more, the egregious issues that they can address, right. And they need to address within their sport and within the center. But there are so many issues that like the, the backlog is just becoming overwhelming. And, it's almost been good that there hasn't been that much sport because they've hopefully had some level of reprieve with less complaints coming through. True. And perhaps, yeah. And perhaps even more time, right. It's like sports. I mean, I know some, some sports are trained. Like I know my, my old swim team I used to coach is unfortunately training right now, but that maybe some of that administrative work day-to-day stuff is hopefully, you know, on a lower level than it used to be. So maybe even some extra time to deal with it. Yeah. But they just keep adding these sort of bureaucratic requirements with it all, even during this period of like, you know, financial incentives were were attached to, you know, doing certain things on safe sport that don't apply to hardly any clubs, you know, in order to qualify for, you know, various, um, 
you know, uh, uh, some of the federal funds that were made available. Um, so just today, I read a piece in ESPN by Dominique Mucciano, um, who's this, you know, as we all know, incredibly famous gymnast who was one of the first to really speak publicly about the Caroli's abusive cu- culture. And um, she was she she mentioned um, sort of safe for athletes and sort of playing a role in helping Nasser's victims in 2016. Um, I would sort of love if you're able to to kind of hear what role it played and sort of um, what that meant to you. So um, I and so Dominique and I um, have had a, a we have a, a really good relationship and I knew she's one of the first people that I connected with early on um, when I started Safe for Athletes and I maintained a relationship with her and we've done some speaking events together and stuff like that and uh, and one of the things that I knew and had a theory about was how to get abuse out of the system right which was you know and and so it's important to me to maintain these level of um, friendships and relationships, if you will. And Dominique was one of those people. And so, um, and she was actually at the Olympic trials and, um, and that's when her cohorts had had this conversation around uh, Larry Nasser. And she reached out to me and said, would you talk to um, Jamie Dancer? It was actually about a, another issue. Um, and so I was actually in the airport. And so Jamie as an athlete a and so um and that was like uh and i was in the airport i think july 28th and uh because i was going to meet my brother and his family celebrate his 50th birthday over in europe and um and so i spoke to jamie and i knew she actually calling about a different coach with issues with that and so it was like so dominique created that connection to myself and then once i um, figured out with Jamie, I go, there's something else going on here. Like you're, you're, you've got like, there's some other abuse going on. And that's when Larry Nasser came up. And so I reached out to, um, then John Manley and then John and I flew up on his jet to go and meet, uh, Jamie Dancer. And, um, she was the first filed lawsuit. Wow. And then Rachel came later. So the time between I had spoken to Jamie, I had um, was or I was waiting till I obviously I had to wait till I come back from Europe and and during that time there was also a big um, release in the Indianapolis Star in regards to they had found like 32 um, files in a drawer of sexual abuse that were just put in a drawer um, and so that was like one of the big stories that was came out during the Rio Olympics. And just to, um, I'm not always familiar with all the characters. John Manley, he was, was he, an, he was an investigator or was he? No, he's the of- lawyer. So he's the lawyer okay. that I took the, like took Jamie to. So John, myself and Jamie met and, um, and then he became the lawyer. Like, so he's the lawyer for many of the victims for on the Larry Nassar case. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and I, and it just seems like with, you know, with athlete a, but also there's like, you know, the ESPN podcast series just got released this week, the week that we're recording that like more and more information is coming out, but it's also, of course, like we have like, uh, gymnasts in Britain that have recently come out and said things that it's sort of picking up speed in terms of people feeling more and more comfortable about sort of coming forward about this stuff, which is, which is really great. Yeah, well, I think that like now, like it's it's like now it's like safe, right? Because mm-hmm. there's like 
you, you know, it's like safe in numbers. Absolutely. So people have the ability to come forward and, and be heard and something can change and be done about it. Absolutely. Um, so sort of knowing what you know about swimming and other sports, uh, t- to what extent would you c- consider yourself a fan? Um, this is a question that we, re- we really like to ask people sort of like, how do you reconcile being a fan or being a former athlete with sort of the information that you know about how abusive uh, people within the sports can be? Well, I was never a fan. I've never been a fan. Like I'm not a fan of like anything. Um, so I, I'm not necessarily the right person to answer that. Um, but what I am a fan of is the strength of our youth. And what I am a fan of is, um, adults that aren't in integrity. I'm a, a, uh, a warrior to protect those that are being, um, uh, harmed by adults being out of integrity. That makes sense. So, so as far as like watching, it's hard for me, like, like it, it's hard for me to consume anything out of any sport area because I've worked on some legal case at some point in time or some case involving pretty much every sport, including the professional sports. Um, and so all of it, like, and, but I also understand intricately about how your passion of being an athlete and how that is, um, how that gets like, um, how the muck is created around it, um, which is really more the issue, which is really where my, so it's not less about watching it as opposed to me protecting and it, helping people protect their own passion that they have for themselves. So it, I don't necessarily, it's not that I'm watching and, and having a different experience with it, other than going behind the scenes and saying, I want you to have the best experience that you are meant to have with the gifts that you are given. And so like, I'm really a fan of all the athletes, if that makes mm. sense. It absolutely does. And that's a very, (laughs) very positive sort of very, very healthy way, right? Is that you want athletes to have sort of the best possible, you know, healthiest experience. And and that's what you're a fan of is is not that the sort of overarching power, you know, abusive structures. Absolutely. Um, So I I wanted to, I I was wondering if you could sort of tell us, you know, like how, if like an athlete experiences something or a parent notices that something's going on, or even, you know, a a, a team wants to um, have you bring your expertise on board, you know, what do they need to do to get in contact with you and say for athletes? So uh, they can just go to our website, the safe number four athletes.org and all of our policies are there and you can shoot us an email. You can call us, you can, you know, um, all the information is very clearly readily available there or send an email at info at, at saferathletes.org. Um, we have a light social media presence at the minute that will change. I'm a non-social media person. Um, but I have a marketing group now that will handle all that. Um, and, uh, so yeah, reach out and re read our policies and know that like, like take action, you know, that's what I say. And if just send us an email, I'll help you. 
Absolutely. Well, and, and I'll and I'll echo that we on End of Sport are very involved on Twitter. So once we sort of see your presence, we'll, we'll find you. You will find safer athletes on Twitter, so that way we can sort of boost you and, and sort of stuff like that. Because we we definitely want to do that for um, athletes and parents and that sort of stuff. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for um, answering all of our questions, all of my questions, and sort of really sharing with us your expertise. This has been like such a fantastic conversation. Well, thank you for having me on. I mean, had a a wide variety of questions. And so um, it was a pleasure. Thank you for tuning into another episode of the End of Sport podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to like, share, and subscribe. Give us a follow on Twitter or Instagram at endofsportpod, or shoot us an email at theendofsport at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.